Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. It's Friday, June 13th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or pretty much any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and many other topics, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its truly great courses. This is Stress and Your Body by Professor Robert Sapolsky, of whom I am a great fan. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. This week, we tackle a topic that is very dear to my heart. In fact, it's the very reason I went into neuroscience to begin with. I first started learning about what single case studies can tell us about the brain by reading Oliver Sacks and his wonderful books when I was a teenager. And from then on, I've always been fascinated to uh, delve more deeply into the case studies uh, that, that really have changed the way we think about the brain. In fact, I'm the editor of a journal called Neurocase, whose goal is just that, to publish these case studies. So I was totally delighted when I found out that science writer Sam Keen put out a new book called The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons. And it is, once again, a series of case studies that have changed the way we think about the brain. And it's more than that. It also includes some historical context of each case and exactly how each case has shifted the way that we think. And it's not only single cases, but also certain groups, categories of diseases that you might not have heard of. Nowadays, we actually don't hear about these single cases in the media very often. We're much more likely to see pictures of brains lit up by, you know, neuroimaging techniques. And, you know, here is the area of the brain that is responsible for your love for Coca-Cola versus Pepsi. And a lot of us neuroscientists, although we see a lot of value in neuroimaging work, have to roll our eyes at a, a number of ways in which the media can overinterpret some of these studies. So, 
often you'll hear one study that has, you know, brain imaging finding X, and then a few months later, another study comes out and says, hey, you know what, that was totally misinterpreted. Here's, here's the real story. And it can be very hard to figure out where, what's true, what's lasting. Um, but these single case studies are definitely lasting. And here's what Sam Keen had to say about it. You see these studies nowadays where there's one part of the brain lit up. It's a very seductive idea. And you see these gorgeous pictures. You see an outline of the brain and there's kind of this rainbow hue to it. And you think, wow, you know, that's the part of the brain that makes you believe in God or something like that. So it is very um, appealing. It's simplistic and kind of seductive in some way. So these studies with brain scans are fascinating. They're an amazing tool, but they're not the only thing out there. And as helpful as they are, just just because they're new doesn't mean they supersede these old methods, these old styles of working with people with injuries. And in fact, a number of people in the book are still alive, still teaching scientists things about how the brain works. So this is a brilliant idea for a book. Can I just first say that? You know, grr, like he's thought of this. He's, he's, really, he's really nailed it. Very smart um, journalist. And my immediate thought was, well, is there any other field of science of course, it'd have to be dealing with the human body in which these kind of case studies are that important. I mean, I'm thinking it's probably not sports medicine. I don't know. Maybe, you know, psychology and Freud had all those case studies. And now we don't even trust it anymore. Um, I don't know. Cancer survivors. Are, are there any other fields where this matters as much as neuroscience? Yeah, I mean, every single hospital ward has a grand rounds, right? Every teaching hospital takes uh, students, medical students through to look at individual cases. And that's really how doctors learn is through the accumulation of experience of single cases. Um, and, you know, but of course, what we know about the brain is very much tied to our own introspection and our own experience of consciousness, which is hard to study in animals. You know, we share a lot more in other organs uh, that seems to be similar to animals. So in some ways, I feel that that the initial ideas about what is going on in the brain can often come from single cases. And then we can go to animal work to flesh them out, um, figure out, you know, what is the animal model of Alzheimer's disease, for example. But first, we need to understand the disease itself. And that often happens by starting out with patients. Well, it's, it's a great interview. So that's going to be our show for today. But first, I actually have a shorter interview that I'd like to share. So We've just seen the conclusion of a spectacular science television event, and I'm talking about Fox and National Geographic Channel's 13-part series, Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey. I think probably all of our listeners were watching it or aware that this happened, so it just ended. Last week, I actually got to sit down at the National Geographic Channel headquarters with the host of the show, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for a second interview. You'll recall that we had him on at the launch of Cosmos right before the first episode. This is sort of like the exit interview. And I was doing this for a written article. We weren't sure if we were going to air it or how much we were going to air it on this show. And we're not airing all of it right now. But we are airing part of it. And you'll actually hear my really super annoying note taking in the background because I wasn't far away enough from the mic. So there's little taps. But nevertheless, Dr. Tyson's brilliance is not too interrupted. Um, so I wanted to share with you one part of the interview in which he's reflecting on what the airing of Cosmos meant culturally, you know, nationally, globally. So the first thing I asked him was, you know, okay, the series is ending. What's the takeaway that we should have about the fact that you actually pulled this off? You had it on the air. What does that mean? And here's what he said. Yeah, I think the takeaway for Cosmos is not simply that it aired, because uh -huh. it aired once before in 1980. Uh -huh. I think it's the combination of the fact that it aired on a major network 
in primetime on a Sunday evening, to be precise. It premiered in 181 countries and 46 languages. I think that's the takeaway here. What it means is, by the way, this happened without we who made the product beating distributors on the head to force them into such distributions. This They did this willingly. <laughs> and if a major network does something such as that willingly, it tells you that science is trending in our culture. And if science is trending, that can only be good for the health, the wealth, and the security of our species, of our civilization. Another question I asked was some online commenters had said that, hey, the TV ratings for Cosmos really weren't that good, or that was their opinion anyway. And so I asked uh, Dr. Tyson about that as well. Here was his reaction. The ratings are exceeding our expectations, not falling shy of expectations. Mm -hmm. But even if ratings weren't high or competitive, you can still judge a product based on its value, value to the human intellect, to our souls of curiosity. And I think it succeeded on, in all of those dimensions, whether or not it did well in the ratings. It also happened to do well in the ratings. Consider that you had entertainment writers putting The Walking Dead in the same sentence as Cosmos. Game of Thrones in the same sentence as Cosmos. How's Cosmos doing against Game of Thrones? That is an extraordinary fact, no matter what ratings it earned. Yeah. It's like me putting you in an aluminum tube, fly you at 37,000 feet at 550 mm -hmm. miles an hour for 2,500 miles, and you walk off on the other side, well, the meat was overcooked mm -hmm. for dinner. It's like, oh, look what you just did. You flew 37,000 feet, 555 miles an hour, 2,500 miles. And I don't know, the meeting was good. I don't know if I'll take that airline again. So to say, oh, Cosmos lost a little to Game of Thrones, or it's like Cosmos is in the same sentence as Game of Thrones. Cosmos is on network, 181 countries, 46 languages. That's the takeaway. And then one final thing I asked was what legacy he thought the airing of Cosmos would leave. What kind of footprint would it have in the TV industry as a whole? I think TV is if nothing else, imitative. Look at the imitative programs that followed the success of American Idol. So you see something that's successful, you do one of those your, yourself to cash in on the interest and energy that you've observed. So I'd like to think that other networks, major networks, upon seeing the success of Cosmos on Fox, might want to do one of those of their own. This would be this is a would be a watershed moment because it would mean that networks who normally think of television as something to entertain you with drama or some reality show or uh, that it will open up their definition of what can be in primetime television. You know, I actually think that Cosmos already won before it even aired, right? The fact that it was going to be that the fact that it aired primetime Sunday night. And as Dr. Tyson mentions, you know, that's when most people are home, uh, you know, watching TV. It's, it's a major slot. Uh, so in some ways that was a win already. And 
you know, frankly, all I saw in terms of people's reactions were were largely positive. I mean, there are some people who nitpicked with certain details, of course, but that's great. I mean, that's the whole point of science is to sort of generate discussion and, and about, you know, and, and figure out how to even get at the question in a different and better way. Um, so I would say it's a huge win. Yeah, I mean, I, given how controversial the things that it took on are, the amazing thing to me is just how much love there was overall and how little negativity. So yeah, I think you got to say it's a win. Yeah, he doesn't mince words. And so, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's great. So also thanks to National Geographic is another story that I'd like to talk about uh, on this episode. And this is one that I heard about from Carl Zimmer's great blog, uh, The Loom, on National Geographic's uh, website. He first talked about this study that showed that young mice can actually make old mice become younger by sharing their blood. So they did this kind of gruesome study where they would kind of attach a young mouse (laughs) to an old mouse uh, and that they would share the same sort of circulatory system. And it turns out that the old mice then, you know, behaved as if they were young again or, you know, their, their markers were such that they, you know, had a new lease on life. But the question was, what is it in the blood that is really causing this effect? And so just recently in Nature Communications uh, this week was published a paper in which one hormone in particular seems to be critical. Now, before I tell you what hormone that is, I want to make a caveat that this particular hormone has a bit of a, well, let's just say a bad rap in the media. So it's often overinterpreted. Uh, and this is the love hormone or oxytocin. So I, I hesitate to call it that. famous oxytocin. <laughs> Every, if you know one hormone, right, this is the one. <laughs> Yeah, this is the one. We all we all love oxytocin, right? It's involved in mother-child bonding. It's involved uh, when prairie voles are going after their mates, and in, in you know, it basically is social bonding. But there are a lot of other uh, uh, ways in which oxytocin can affect us, and some of some of which are not particularly positive. But one thing that happens as you get older, you might notice that it takes you a longer time to recover from injuries. So the problem is, is that your skeletal muscles begin to decline in their ability to regenerate. Uh, so that's major problem that that actually affects a lot of people who get older. In fact, that's one of the reasons perhaps that um, something like a hip fracture in old age can kill you, right? You know, not not directly, but indirectly can make you uh, less able to move around, which, you know, causes you then to have other problems and eventually it can lead to your death. So what happens in these mice is that oxytocin seems to be involved in helping stem cells regenerate skeletal muscles. So these older mice then seem to be able to regenerate their skeletal muscles when they have been exposed to oxytocin from the young mice. Now, this is great news for those of us who are getting older because oxytocin is FDA approved as a drug. Now, of course, this is in mice, and we don't know whether this effect will be seen in humans as well. um, But it's really hopeful. You know, I think that there's there's a really good chance that this could stave off some of the major problems of aging. Hmm. So I actually have written a lot about aging research as a journalist, but not in the last 10 years. I, I took some time to do some aging. And so when you bring this up now, I'm like, okay, 10 years ago, there were all these things they were obsessed with for, you know, making people live longer. And no one was mentioning oxytocin 
at all. They were talking about resveratrol, you know, the thing in red wine. They were talking about caloric restriction, like don't eat as much so that you won't have as many free radicals destroying your cells. And so I guess I, I guess my first comment is maybe I, is it okay if I'm a little skeptical um, that we haven't found the pill for the fountain of youth yet? Because it seems like <laughs> there's a lot of things out there. Absolutely. I mean, I would say huge skepticism here about whether or not this is going to be the, you know, magical pill. Uh, but I do think that what's exciting about this is it seems to open up a, a whole new area of research and one that has a mechanism attached to it, right? We never really understood, you know, there's this whole free radical antioxidant story, you know, it never, now hasn't really quite panned out. Um, but here we have a, a way in which, you know, a real mechanism, it's not just, okay, the presence of oxytocin. It's like the presence of oxytocin in the way that it interacts with stem cells, you know, and causes this pretty specific effect in terms of skeletal muscle regeneration, uh, you know, that that's encouraging to me. Mm-hmm. No, that's impressive. So here's another thing about uh, it does this, this molecule does so many things. I don't know if you've heard this research. It also seems to promote in-group behavior. So you're more trusting and it's about bonding, right? But, but bonding with the people who are part of your group and not so much the people who are not part of your group. So I'm just thinking to myself, maybe we'll all be on oxytocin and make us live longer until we get killed because we start fighting another tribe. (laughs) Or maybe it'll bring the whole, you know, uh, species together and then we can fight the aliens who are going to be invading, you know, Yeah, we should just, you know, take oxytocin before the intergalactic (laughs) battle. Okay. (laughs) I don't know how we got there. (laughs) Okay, so moving on. Another thing to bring up. The World Cup. Uh, you can't see, but I'm recording in a Cruzeiro soccer jersey, which is a, uh, one of the clubs in Brazil. Um, Very fashionable. Yeah, definitely. So it started uh, in Brazil just yesterday when people are hearing this. And we wanted to find out something about the science of soccer for the occasion, and Indre's research helped. So uh, this is fascinating, actually. I don't know how many people remember that last time around the World Cup was in South Africa. And the players were so ticked off about the ball that they were being used because they claimed it did all these funky movements in the air. And it turned out the ball, it was called the Jabulani, and it had been dynamically engineered to have less friction as it sails through the air. And so, you know, if you picture a soccer ball, it usually has all these panels on it. The ball had only eight panels, and that meant less stitches, and that meant less friction. But this, for the players, this made the ball unpredictable, and it would suddenly veer in flight. It would sort of knuckleball, as they put it. And it would do that at certain speeds, which are usually the speeds where you're taking a shot on goal. So, okay, all these complaints. Um, So researchers went to their air tunnels to do some soccer ball research. And now this World Cup is going to have a new ball, and it is bringing back more friction. The new ball is called, the appropriately, the brazooka. And it has only six panels, but they made the surface subtly rougher to bring some of that, um, some of that friction and turbulence back in, cut down the crazy motion. So we're going to have to see how it sails through the air. But it, it actually underscores something that while we talk about who's going to be the star of the World Cup and who's going to score all the goals. Ultimately, the determinant of who wins and who scores might just be plain physics. Yeah, see, you boys are always so interested in your balls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice, nice, right, very appropriate. Oh, I think, and actually, in, when it comes to the World Cup, there are a lot of girls that are interested too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, okay. <clears throat> so, but, you know, honestly, brazooka... Yeah, really? I know, I know, I know, I know. It's it's unfortunate. I mean, look, there's a lot of things about the World Cup that are unfortunate, as we've all been reading in the press. So, 
yeah. but this at least was a was a, a science story that was substantially interesting. Uh, yeah, me. no, I think it's cool. In fact, you know, there's already been, I've been reading people have been criticizing even this ball too, uh, in, in terms of, you know, how it's going to function. So in some ways, if you're watching the World Cup and like me, you're not, I'm not really that clear on how football or soccer works. Uh, certainly this makes it much more interesting. You know, it can actually watch, well, like, how does the ball fly around? And, you know, is, is that something that I can pick up on? So. Well, there's one thing you, it's, it's like with Game of Thrones, stick them with the pointy end. Okay. This is put the ball in the goal. You can really, you can figure it out. There's, there's one fundamental that doesn't yeah. change. But the problem is that they just run around for an hour and like once in a while it goes into the goal, right? That's, that's certainly true. <laughs> I, I like to think, what if they changed the baseball regularly, you know, and kept changing the friction? I mean, people would go nuts. I'm surprised that they actually do this when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, well, you can argue that there have been a couple of pitchers lately right. that have been trying yeah. to, right? You know? Little, yeah, uh, I know. You can do, you can do all <laughs> kinds of... Well, that's higher speeds, too, so I'm sure you can do even more. But, I mean, I, it's surprising that, that they just sort of change this on the players every four years. Thought. Yeah, yeah. And also, I was also reading about how one of the other issues about Brazil, of course, is the heat. And so... Uh, countries that have players who play in much more temperate climates uh, are, are actually at a disadvantage because their bodies haven't been able to withstand this kind of heat. So what time of day these matches are being played is really seen as, you know, preferring one team or another, depending on whether that team is heat sensitive. Yes. And if the World Cup actually does happen in Qatar in 2022, where the temperatures are like basically will kill you if you're out in long in the, them long enough and sweat, then everyone will be in trouble. So Yeah, well, wait to see what kind of balls yeah. they come up with there. Okay. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Sam Keen. If you listen to Inquiring Minds, and you do, I'm talking to you, then you, know, you like to get deep into ideas, and you like to turn them around in your head and see them in all their aspects, and really take some time with taking them in. You, you enjoy learning and you enjoy depth. And that's why here at the show, Chris, our producer Adam, and I are all fans of The Great Courses, which has been in production for over 20 years. And they offer a whole series of engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. Right. And we recently listened to one of these, a really, really good one. I gotta say, called Stress in Your Body by Stanford professor Robert Sapolsky. And, you know, as someone who is in journalism, I mean, maybe I've experienced stress now and again. And this is just listening to this is so eye opening because stress can do so much to mess you up. Basically, through the ill advised, this is what he explains through the unfortunate use of your mind, you can, in effect, turn one of your body's own systems against you. Yeah, and so we've all heard stress is bad, avoid stress. But, you know, that doesn't give you any tools with which you can actually make yourself healthier or avoid some of the ill effects of stress. And here's where Dr. Sapolsky comes in. He explains in detail exactly how stress affects your body, what types of stress are worse for you, and what you can do to cope with it. That's a major part of his work is the is understanding coping mechanisms and that's what this course is all about it's going to give you all the depth you could possibly want on this topic and for a limited time the great courses is giving a special offer to you our listeners you can order stress in your body and get 80 percent off of the original price and this is only available for a limited time 80 percent off so don't wait go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds to take advantage of this special offer Again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. 
Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Sam Keen. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And it's especially because we get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is neuroscience. So I'm delighted about that. And one of the criticisms that I often get as a neuroscientist is that we reduce the mysteries of the mind into uninteresting banalities when we study them, um, that we'll never be able to explain complex phenomena like consciousness or love or imagination. But in the very introduction of your book, you set out to explore how a conscious mind can emerge from the physical brain. So tell me a little bit about your journey and why you chose that particular topic. Well, I did want to really dive into how the brain works on all its different levels. I wanted to, you know, explain how the chemicals in our brain works, how the cells in our brain works, how neurons, things like that work. But I do think you're right that when we're talking about the brain, you do have to get into some of these high level interesting things like emotions, consciousness, free will, all these big, big topics. And I really wanted to take kind of a story-based approach to the book because I really think that stories are probably as important to neuroscience, maybe even more important to neuroscience than they are to any other field because you are talking about the way people approach their lives, things like how you interact with your loved ones, your memories, things like that. So I did want to make sure that I get into these big meaty topics and show people you know, how these things affect their lives and how you can train them back to what's going on inside your brain. And so this is a technique that's been, you know, used in the past by a couple of other authors and, you know, arguably perfected by someone like Oliver Sacks, but, you know, also Jay Ingram and even Norman Doidge recently has used case studies in, as a microscope into brain function. So how does your book differ from, say, An Anthropologist on Mars or, you know, books that are similar to that? Well, what I really wanted to do is take a broad, broad look at all of neuroscience from the very, very beginnings of the field all the way up to what's going on today. Uh, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I don't have people coming in that I can talk about, you know, cases I've treated, things like that. But in a way that kind of liberated me where I could look at everything, all these big important case studies from, th uh, from all of history. And so I really wanted to look at, you know, the beginnings of neuroscience and then really how it kind of progressed over time. So the book really did try to take a broad sweep and look at all of neuroscience. And so the very first case that you describe is that of Henri II, you know, a king of France, and from the 16th century, and it was the first time that I had ever heard about this case, so I was really interested in reading it. How did you come across this case, and how, how were you able to get so many details of his life and, and his suffering out of the historical record? So I came across this case through one of the dueling neurosurgeons of the title, through Andreas Vesalius, who produced one of the first really big uh, and important anatomy books in history. Actually came out the same year that Nicholas Copernicus's uh, book about the Earth moving around the sun came out, and it had a similar effect on the study of the human body. It really broke new ground, opened up a new world for people trying to study the human body. And I was reading about this important case that he did with King Henry II of France, who was kind of this big macho king and ended up getting clobbered in a jousting match one day and suffered what we would now recognize as a massive concussion. 
uh, people at the time really didn't uh, take concussion seriously. It wasn't a diagnosis that they thought much of. And they thought Henry was actually going to be just fine because when they looked at his skull, there was no you know big crack on the outside. There wasn't a gory, obvious wound. And they kind of reasoned like you would with, say, an egg, where if the shell isn't broken, then you figure the yolk inside must be fine. So when Henry's skull wasn't broken, they figured that his brain must be fine. But uh, Andreas Vesalius and the other dueling neurosurgeon, Ambrose Pare, uh, they reasoned differently, and they realized that Henry was actually in a lot of trouble. And so, again, this book kind of shows where neuroscience came from, because a lot of the symptoms they were treating in Henry uh, foreshadowed the next four centuries of neuroscience and really got the field started in the way it would progress, in that they were looking at an injury to a specific part of the brain, and then they would try to correlate his symptoms, how he suffered. And from that, they could kind of figure out what the damaged parts of the brain did. Uh, as for finding out lots of detail about the king, it was just a matter of digging as much as possible into the historical record and looking not only at the science involved, but looking at, you know, the how jousting worked back then, uh, the power plays, the politics of uh, France at the time. All these different things I kind of wanted to pour into it because not only does I think it help you to kind of immerse yourself in the story, but it gives you kind of a richer picture of the science at the time, the way they reasoned, and uh, what they knew about the brain, how they approached it. And it really does add a lot to the case itself, I I have to say. But you touched upon something that I think people still have a misconception about, which is this idea that, you know, if there isn't exterior damage to the head or the skull, then, you know, the hit couldn't have been that damaging to the brain. You know, we, we, right now it's very popular to talk about concussions in sports like football and hockey and the damage that they can, you know, wreck on someone's life many, many years later. So, Can you talk a little bit about how it is that the brain can be damaged when the skull is intact and why sometimes an intact skull can actually be more damaging than a skull that cracks? Yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to get across with these stories is that they're not just old stories that happened hundreds of years ago that have no relevance today. In some cases, like this with Henry II, we're still relearning this lesson about concussions and about how bad they really can be. So I wanted to emphasize, again, that these stories do have a lot of um, applicability to what we're learning, what we know about the brain today. Basically, when you get a concussion, a big concussion, it causes low-level damage throughout the brain. Uh, Twisting injuries, where you get hit on the side of your head and your head kind of jerks one way, those are especially bad because they end up tearing at the seams between neurons, sometimes even tearing neurons themselves open. And your brain, because of the flood of chemicals that come out of these torn neurons, uh, your brain often has a big electrical discharge at the same time. It's basically the equivalent of having a seizure. And so even though it's not obvious from the outside that something's wrong, there is something wrong when you look at the levels of cells and neurotransmitters. Something very bad has happened. And as you said, it's in fact the case that having a crack in your skull can actually save you sometimes because 
the one thing the brain can't stand is too much pressure in it. If the brain starts to swell or if blood pools up inside the brain, it's very, very deadly. It will start to crush cells. It will cut off uh, you know, nutrients from the end of the brain. It's a very, very bad situation. If you have a crack in the skull, sometimes that can give the blood or the brain room to expand into, whereas the skull itself, when it's intact, doesn't have a lot of flexibility, doesn't allow the brain any room. So the skull protects us for the most part, but in these really bad concussion cases, can actually end up backfiring and making things worse. So concussions are an example of an injury that affects a lot of different parts of the brain. And so we can see then how the symptoms can be you know, a result of many different parts of the brain being injured. But many case studies in which neuroscience has made a leap forward come from people who have a pretty specific injury to like one particular part of the brain. And, you know, one of the best ways of learning about the brain is when we, ha when we see a couple of patients that, that have what's called a double dissociation. So this is where, you know, patient A has damage to one particular region and therefore has a loss of one particular function. And patient B has, has that region intact and that function intact, but, you know, has a problem with a different function because of a lesion somewhere else in the brain. And then we can say, okay, well, then those parts of the brain are necessary for those tasks, etc. Um, so can you give us an example uh, of, of a double dissociation that you came across that really is fundamental to how we understand some aspect of neuroscience? Yeah, in fact, the sort of the story that I came across that inspired me to look into the book and actually got me interested in the topic for the first time was one of these cases. Um, in fact, when I read about this, I, I did not believe it at first. I just said, there's no way that can possibly be true. I just did not believe it. It was a case of someone who had an injury to the part of their temporal lobe, so on the side of the brain near the temples, and this person lost the ability to recognize all animals. He couldn't tell dogs from cats, from elephants, from raccoons, from whatever. All of them looked like these sort of alien zoo animals to him. He had no idea what they were. There were other people, however, who could recognize animals just fine, but they couldn't recognize plants. So, you know, carrots, potatoes, fruits, vegetables, whatever, they all looked identical to them. And so that's an example of one of these double dissociations where you have two very specific attributes in the brain. One person lost one, one person lost the other. And again, as I was reading these, I said, that's baloney. I said, there's no way that can possibly be true. But then I looked into it and I realized that not only is it true, it actually reveals some important things about how the brain works. And so then I was kind of thinking about it and I said, wow, I bet, you know, you could write a whole book about just different injuries and what these injuries reveal about the brain. And that's sort of where the inspiration came from. And so there's another story that you talk about, which is actually one of my favorite patients. And he recently died in April, Kent Cochran. I think he wrote about his death on Slate.com as well. And um, so tell us a little bit about Kent Cochran, um, you know, where, what his damage revealed to us and how that sort of changed the way that we think about memory. So Ken Cochran was usually known as KC in the medical literature. He was kind of this wild child from around the Toronto area. And, you know, he would play pool till all hours, go to Mardi Gras, kind of an extended adolescence. And he ended up skidding off an exit ramp on his motorcycle when he was about 30 years old in the early 1980s. 
ended up suffering damage to his hippocampuses uh, or hippocampi. They're the part of the brain that's really intimately involved in forming and storing memories. So he became an amnesiac as a result. There had been some other big cases of amnesia before KC, but he really taught us something important about different types of memory in the brain. Because KC did retain some things from before his accident. Uh, he could remember, say, the rules to pool, playing billiards. He knew the rules to prices right games. Uh, he knew the difference between stalactites and stalagmites, things like that. But the neuroscientists who were looking at him realized that everything that he remembered was sort of like facts you could look up in a book, things you could find out from an encyclopedia. They call them semantic memory, so names, dates, things like that. What he didn't have, what he lost completely, were what we call episodic or personal memories. So he had no personal memory of anything that had ever happened to him, how he felt about, you know, a Christmas present he got, a time he felt lonely or happy or something like that. So basically from him, we got the idea that there are different types of memories in the brain, and some of them are very personal. They're involved with emotions and things like that, and his entire emotional memory system was wiped out completely. So he really taught us how memories become personal and that there's this difference in the brain between just bare facts and things that we really uh, cherish deep down inside of us, those kind of memories. And the other thing that I think is really fascinating about his case is that he also taught us that in order to imagine the future, sort of vividly get an idea of what might happen to you in the future under different scenarios, you have to have access to the past. You have to be able to picture the past. So that's one thing that he had a lot of trouble with is sort of figuring out what the future is going to look like, what he should do next, um, which I think is a really interesting insight into how these two, the past and the future, are connected in our brains. Yeah, we know, obviously, when we think about people with amnesia, we realize that their past is wiped out completely. And, you know, their present is also a little weird because when their short-term memories fade, they kind of go away. And it is kind of counterintuitive that and again, the future also disappears for them. But if you think about it, it does make sense because the ultimate biological purpose of having a memory isn't just, you know, to make you happy or something like that. The point of a memory is so that you can kind of keep track of what happened in your past and then apply that to the future. So you remember, oh, I shouldn't go near that snake or whatever because it might bite me. Or you remember where food is, something like that. It ends up being beneficial. It helps you. When your memory gets wiped out as a result, you have trouble with the future. And KC ended up having trouble, as you said, even imagining himself in the future. When he lost his past self, he lost all sense of what he was going to do over the next hour or over the next day or over the next year. He couldn't project himself forward at all and kind of realize that he would want to be doing something in a month or a year. It was kind of eternally trapped in the present intense. It's amazing. But one of the criticisms that people sometimes levy against those of us who are interested in case studies is that it leads to a kind of compartmentalizing of the brain where we start to think about, you know, regions that act in isolation. And, you know, right from the outside in your book, you talk about how the brain, you know, works as a series of, of networks. You didn't use those particular work, words, but that these different brain regions are interconnected, that they work together, and that we can't simply talk about, you know, a region in isolation for the vast majority uh, 
of, of brain functions. So how do you use case studies to show that these different regions actually work together and that it's important to think of the brain as a series of interconnected parts rather than, you know, a series of parts that are distinct? Well, I think one thing you can do is you can look at some of the more complicated functions we have, like memory, uh, like language, and show that there aren't just, you know, one set of symptoms that people have. There are lots of different symptoms. If you look at language, for instance, there are different types of aphasia, which is the neurological loss of speech. There's the classic Broca's aphasia, where people sound like they're kind of stuttering. They have a very hard time getting even a few words out. Just one or two words is a real struggle for them. It's one type of aphasia. There's also what's called Wernicke's aphasia, which is uh, people, you know, they can speak at length about, you know, whatever they want for long, long times, very long, intricate sentences. But the sentences are complete nonsense. They don't make any sense whatsoever because they're just stringing random words together. You can also uh, talk about cases where people lose the ability to speak, but they can still sing just fine afterwards. Uh, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords from Arizona, for instance, that's exactly what happened to her after she got shot in the head. She lost the ability to speak, but she could still sing songs like girls just want to have fun, stuff like that. So if you look at all of these different cases of language, you start to realize that, oh, there's a lot of different parts of the brain involved here, and each one contributes something. Broca's aphasia seems to contribute the ability to actually form the words and make the words. Wernicke's area associates words, the um, sort of phonological uh, aspects of words, their sounds, with the meaning and links them together. But you can also talk about music and how music works with language, how memory works with language. So you can take one topic like language, and by breaking down different parts, you can see that lots of the parts of the brain must work together to contribute to language. And you can do that for consciousness, uh, free will, lots of different systems in the brain. And you can also uh, talk about some cases, which which you mentioned in your book, uh, of people who have the connectivity between different regions severed. So I'm thinking about Roger Sperry and the corpus callosum. So can you unpack for our listeners uh, what it is that we can learn from patients whose connections between regions have been severed? Yeah, so in some cases, as you said, the actual parts that produce language or whatever are fine, but the white matter, kind of the wires between these parts of the brain get uh, destroyed or severed. With the patients you're talking about, the split-brain patients, uh, basically the corpus callosum is the bundle of fibers that connects the right and left hemispheres in the brain. It's a big, beefy bundle of fibers right in the middle. Uh, but there are certain people out there who have very bad epilepsy. Drugs couldn't control it. So they decided to take kind of a drastic step and sever their corpus callosum. So they open them up surgically and just cut the brain in two, essentially. Uh, these people, it ended up being a very effective cure for the epilepsy, and their minds were mostly okay afterward. Uh, you know, they retained the ability to speak, they retained their memories, most things were okay. But there were certain tests that they would do to them where you could see that something was a little off about their brain. And essentially what happened was they had two separate brains working inside them. So they could do things like draw independent figures with their left and right hand at the same time because their minds were basically working independently. 
Or if you did certain tests where you would flash words onto the screen, a word like hot dog, and then you had them draw pictures of what they'd seen, one hand would pick up a pencil and would draw a picture of a dog. The other hand would pick up a pencil and draw a picture of a sun. So they couldn't integrate the two words because hot got flashed to one side of the brain, dog got flashed to the other side of the brain. So anything that involved the two parts of their brains working together they failed those kind of tests. So it was kind of spooky to think about the idea of two brains going on independently. But the whole idea that we know today about left brain and right brain having distinct talents comes from these kind of cases. And the unfortunate thing, of course, is that these cases showed what happens when those connections are severed and the brain, the two hemispheres act independently. And yet most, for most of us, those connections are not severed. In fact, they're a major part of our brains. And so this idea that we are either left-brained or right-brained uh, is really, that has no basis in neuroscience, but unfortunately is really, really popular um, in a lot of sort of, you know, pseudoscience or applications of neuroscience. So what what can we do to mitigate the fact that sometimes you know people take these cases and then completely blow out of proportion their importance in in an erroneous way the way sort of the left brain right brain distinction has become yeah, I mean, you could take this stuff way, way too far. So I just think what you need to do is just emphasize that when you're talking about the brain, as we were discussing before, nothing works in isolation. There's always connections between different parts of the brain. And it's not like one part of the brain is just producing memory or language or whatever, and the other part is just sitting there doing nothing, sort of twiddling its thumbs as if nothing is happening. You need all parts of your brain working together to produce these complex function. So I do have fun in the book talking about these really interesting cases, but I hope it was clear in there that, yeah, things like, you know, the idea that the left brain is logical and controls all language and the right brain is completely arty and just does, wants to do those kind of creative things. That's way, way overblown. Yeah. And, and you do make it very clear. And I, I was very uh, happy to read that. Okay, good. <laughs> so there's also, you know, a sense that neuropsychology or the study of people with brain damage um, was really the fundamental way in which neuroscience was moving forward, you know, for, for many, many years before the advent of neuroimaging, which is now a way of looking into the healthy brain without damage um, and seeing how it functions, you know, in a healthy person while they're doing a particular task. So, you know, with the advent of neuroimaging, now um, we, we can sort of see the brain in action. But now we also have another fundamental problem, which is that neuroimaging is really tells us about correlations. It tells us what parts of the brain are active when we're doing something, but not necessarily what brain part, what brain regions are necessary for a particular function the way an injury would. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, where neuros, neuro imaging fits in into your sort of series of case studies um, and how we can educate our audience to be more cautious when they're interpreting findings from neuroimaging rather than as opposed to findings from patients. Yeah, so you see these studies nowadays where there's one part of the brain lit up. It's a very seductive idea, and you see these gorgeous pictures. You see an outline of the brain, and there's kind of this rainbow hue to it, and you think, wow, you know, that's the part of the brain that makes you believe in God or something like that. So it is very um, appealing. It's simplistic and kind of seductive in some way. But I do think we, as you said, need to make it clear that the – 
when you're talking about these complicated functions in the brain, there's lots of different things going on. And just because one part of the brain is working or working hard doesn't mean that it's the only part of the brain working at that moment. Uh, another thing to emphasize to people is that in a lot of these studies, you know, doing these kind of brain scans is expensive. So they often rely on pretty small sample sizes and they end up you know, maybe being skewed by just random fluctuations in the data. So these studies with brain scans are fascinating. They're an amazing tool, but they're not the only thing out there. And as helpful as they are, just because they're new doesn't mean they supersede these old methods, these old styles of working with people with injuries. And in fact, a number of people in the book are still alive, still teaching scientists things about how the brain works. Yeah, so it, you know, in, and this is because, of course, neuroimaging is is correlative. Whereas, if you have damage to a particular brain region and now you lose a function as a result, you know, we can say that part of the brain really has, you know, is necessary for that function. Um, we can't say that in neuroimaging, but then neuroimaging can also tell us about brain regions that don't usually succumb to injuries. Like, for example, um, the precuneus is a brain region that is not talked about almost at all in the neuropsychological literature because there are very few. If any cases of sort of, you know, segregated damage to this particular region, uh, because it sort of sits in the middle of the brain, you know, it doesn't, it's not like on the surface. Um, and yet it lights up all kinds of neuroimaging studies from self-consciousness and, you know, all kinds of really sort of higher order functions. Uh, so, you know, we can learn about the precuneus and what it might be involved in. But, you know, there's still this kind of weird dichotomy between the information that we get from neuroimaging and the information that we get from the patients. So yeah, so the the trick is then to figure out how to integrate that, how to use both of those things together. And, you know, I don't know that I have the answers right now. It's a difficult question. Um, but we need to be, I think, aware of the fact that we do need to use both types of studies. And there are also other things we can do. We can give people, you know, virtual lesions by using uh, transcranial stimulation, things like that. Shut down a part of the brain virtually, see what happens then. So there are lots of different things we can do. And hopefully we'll start to see some sort of consistent picture emerge for these kind of mysterious parts of the brain. But you don't shy away from the difficult topics. So I, I was also pleased to hear that you do talk about our sense of self, which is in some ways, you know, the holy grail of neuroscience. How do we identify ourselves and our consciousness within our own brains? And one thing that you noticed is that, you know, despite the fact that there, you talk about many, many, many different types of injuries, in general, it's very rare for a patient to stop feeling as though they are still themselves. They sort of continue to retain the sa same sense of self, even though their personality may have changed or the way that they experience the world may have changed in a drastic way. So can you talk a little bit about some of the insights that you've gained from studying these cases um, on how we identify our own selves? Yeah, that was one of the things that actually surprised me. It wasn't something I knew about before I started the book. And it was a theme that only emerged over time as I looked at a lot of different case studies. And that is, as you said, that your sense of self is very hard to dislodge. It's very tenacious. So there were people who had their memories wiped out completely. Uh, they couldn't remember anything in their past. Uh, they basically had no short-term memory. They couldn't form memories or didn't have much of 
a sense of the self about their future either. But they still knew on some level who they were deep down. People who lost their language, uh, people who had their personalities completely changed. In all of these cases, despite these drastic changes to some aspect of their mind and brain, they still knew who they were in that they rarely have ever forgot their name. They knew their own personality traits. Even, you know, people who couldn't remember a single time that they had been impatient or that they had been kind. They couldn't give you any specific example ever. They still knew that they had these traits somehow. So there's something about the sense of self that's very deeply integrated into us. And I think one of the lessons from that is that we don't get our sense of self from one part of the brain. Because if it was just in one part of the brain, when that part got injured, that sense of self was sort of evaporate. So the fact that it's very tenacious uh, tells me that there's lots of different parts of the brain contributing to making you know who you are, to have that sense of self inside you. So it was something that surprised me, but the more cases I looked, the more I saw evidence that you really do retain this sense of self. And in some ways, you know, I thought that was kind of comforting too, because when you're talking about these stories, you have to put yourself in the mind of these people and think, you know, what would I be like if I lost this function of my brain? Or, you know, if I turned into a pathological liar, I couldn't recognize my loved ones anymore. But there are some things you do do retain that you won't lose about yourself. And the other positive side about some of these case studies, not all of them, but some of them for sure, is that people do have an amazing capacity for recovery, uh, that the brain is is resilient in a lot of ways in, in which other organs are not. Um, so can you talk a little bit about some cases that you that you wrote about in which we actually can see how resilient the brain is? Yeah, so there are cases where people would get injured and, you know, they couldn't speak or they couldn't move parts of their body, something like that. But over time, because of the brain's amazing ability to heal itself or its ability to compensate, to come up with compensation strategies, because of those things, people were able to resume maybe not their completely normal life, but something like a normal life. And in fact, maybe the best example comes from probably the most famous case in neuroscience, the Phineas Gage case. Everyone's probably heard about Phineas Gage. He was the railroad worker who had the big spike blown through the top of his head. Uh, and unfortunately, the case that most people hear about might be wrong in that we usually hear about Phineas Gage turning into kind of this, you know, a criminal type or this kind of drunken lout or something like that. But there's actually not much evidence that something so drastic and bad happened to him. And in fact, some historians, when they looked at the case, they can see that there's evidence he might have actually recovered somewhat. He ended up going down and living on his own in Chile for seven years, for instance. Uh, had to learn a new language, was driving horse coaches down there, doing things like that. It's not something you would expect someone to do who had severe brain damage. So, you know, again, he probably didn't become the old Phineas Gage. And we know that he did change somehow. But there's decent evidence that even he recovered somewhat over time. And I think that does give you a lot of hope. So I just want to remind our listeners that Sam Keen's book is called The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, The History of the Human Brain as Revealed by True Stories of Trauma, Madness and Recovery. 
So in the beginning, you set out to really try to understand how the conscious mind emerges from the brain. And although we're nowhere near to be, you know, there yet in terms of neuroscience, you know, your book really tells us, gives us a, a, an idea of just how much we already do know. Uh, and, and so I think that that's really one of its greatest strengths. And also it's just really a fun read. But I wanted to ask you, what do you think would be the consequences if we did manage to answer that question? What if we knew exactly how the mind emerges from the brain and there was very little mystery left? How would our lives change? I think if we knew the answer to that question, uh, I think new mysteries would pop up and there would still be more to do. I think if you just look at the historical record, there would still be more mysteries out there. There are always more mysteries out there. So I don't think that we would somehow end up kind of explaining away all the beauty or all the fun of being a human being. Uh, and also, we would still experience things like happiness or love. It's not like they mean less to us if we know that there are brain chemicals involved or something like that. How it would actually affect our day-to-day -day life um, I'm not sure. I don't know that when you're in the heat of the moment really thinking about things, I don't think it really affects what you're doing that you might have knowledge of it. So I don't think it would affect your day-to-day -day life very much. And I do think it would provide more insight into just how human beings became the way we are. So I don't think there's much to fear about it. And I don't think it would really change a whole lot about how we go about our lives. So I hope we're going to get some clear answers to these questions. And I'm not someone who thinks, you know, it's right around the corner. I think it will be quite a lot of work, quite a lot of time. Uh, but I'm hopeful we will get there someday. Yeah, I agree with you. And then hopefully we can upload our brains into some, you know, <laughs> computer and live forever. <laughs> we'll be talking hundreds of years from now. Yep. <laughs> My ultimate hope. But it's certainly true that your case studies do show us that just by delving more deeply into a question, uh, it only brings up more questions. And, and the, the curiosity and the wonder that you bring to these studies really is at the heart of neuroscience. So um, thank you for writing this book. Oh, well, thank you very much. And thanks for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I, I know it's not the biggest part of the book, but I got to say, to me, the most fascinating study, case study, is the, the person who forgets the names of animals. You know, that's just, it's so weird that that could happen. But, but remembers everything else, right? Everything else is fine, but that can't say. Yeah, these agnosias are really, really specific. And what's interesting is that that particular patient not only couldn't remember the names of animals, so it's not just a naming problem, but, um, you know, she also couldn't tell the sounds of animals. So if you played like, you know, a pig oinking uh, and a cow mooing, she couldn't tell you, you know, what those two animal sounds represented. But if you played her like, you know, a car honking and a telephone ringing, she immediately knew, you know, what those sounds meant. So it goes beyond just the actual word, but rather sort of other details about items in that category as well. Again, great idea for a book. <laughs> great idea for a book. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, stock tips, or anything else to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. I want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, 
fine arts, and more. The great courses are available for digital download and streaming. You can get them on DVD, you can get them on CD, and you can listen to or watch the great courses at your own pace. There's no pressure, homework, exams, anything like that. Now, for a limited time only, the great courses is giving you, our listeners, an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses, and a very good one, Stress and Your Body by Professor Robert Sapolsky. So if you want to take advantage of this offer, just go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.